You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 109. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, what a crazy few weeks it's been. <laughs> We've uh, We're going to talk even more about probability today. And uh, today we're going to focus, we're going to approach it from the angle of experimental design, among other things, with today's guest. Um, I have I have a lot of really cool topics on the horizon here that I am excited to share with you all on the local maximum uh, in the first half of 2020. But obviously, you know, the last couple of weeks, the spread of coronavirus, COVID-19 is heading all the news this week. Um, Sometimes I ignore the news on the show. It's kind of hard to ignore it this week. I, I thought about how to approach this on the local maximum. I know some people want to get my take on some aspects of about it, uh, about it. So, um, well, so look, I, I don't want to be the arbiter of information for this thing. There are too many rumors and stories going around, and hopefully, uh, through listening to this podcast, you'll be better equipped to make your own decisions, make up your own mind, and evaluate what people are telling you about it. I mean, that's that's sort of where the local maximum shines. Uh, now, it all got real for me this week as, you know, my office is closed here in New York City. I actually showed up at the Foursquare office on Friday, and nobody was there. It's kind of creepy. I was like, what, what's going on? Is it a weekend or something? It turns out, yes, they closed the office, and it's, it's closed... Um, until further notice, I don't know, maybe it'll be open again this week. Uh, I guess you could say we shut it down until we figure out what the heck is going on. Uh, we live in very close quarters here in New York City. And so, you know, I take the subway every day. It's disgusting. It's gross. I usually don't get sick from it. I guess I guess it's been a little better recently, actually, because it's been emptier. But it's still not that empty. So I'll keep you, update, I'll, I'll keep you uh, updated on what I'm doing. Um, right now, look, um, I'm just taking the usual precautions, which is sort of limiting the amount uh, of time that I go out and go to big events and sort of being cautious about washing my hands and hand sanitizing. I feel like that's all I, I can do at this point. Um, there are a number of theoretical questions, you know, questions of a statistical nature about the spread of coronavirus that have come up and that have reached my inbox, which uh, I think that I am, in fact, equipped to handle on the show. So we might talk about those over the next couple of weeks. Um, But again, that'll be in the context of also what's going on here in the city. So it won't just be kind of a detached quasi-academic discussion. I know know people kind of do these things when a lot of people are, uh, you know, it's... uh, you know, it's hard to have an academic discussion when, like, you know, people are suffering somewhere else on what you're talking about. But, you know, it yes, it is a serious problem. But I think there are certain topics we could talk about. Maybe it'll help us understand better uh, the questions that are being put to um, health professionals right now. But again, I'm not going to be the one meticulously gathering the facts and the expertise. So we're all just going to have to continue to absorb the information that's coming out take it easy and do the best we can. So I know some of you are from unaffected places and are like, whatever. Uh, And uh, we've been real heavy on the statistical stuff for the last several weeks. So over the next few weeks, I am really planning on lighter episodes. I promise a few lighter episodes. Uh, I really want to do a panel 
with a group of designers at Foursquare who sit near me. Uh, a few of them are going to get together. We're going to talk about uh, product design. And, you know, I love talking about building products. I've never actually interviewed a designer on the show. How insane is that? Of any kind. Not a graphic designer, not a UX designer, not a UI designer. That is freaking insane. I have a few few good product people who are, you know, um, interested in, de- who, who have done some design. But, you know, n- nobody who is a designer at a tech company. So that will be really awesome. Uh, I've also been hard at work um, in my day job at Foursquare. You know I'm working on something. I'm being very quiet about what's going on at work, so you know I'm cooking up something. Well, you can call it the latest app from Foursquare. It's just me and um, an, an iOS engineer uh, who, I don't know, he probably won't come on the show. He's, he's expressed reservations, but maybe I'll get him on the show. And, and Dennis is just kind of the three of us with some help from the Foursquare consumer team. And I am really excited to share this app with you when it comes out. Uh, we were originally going to launch it at South by Southwest. Now South by Southwest is canceled. And we kind of figured, hey, you know what? We don't need to launch the South by Southwest. This is kind of a better warm weather app. Um, so it, it's, I don't want to go into the whole thing now. Think of it as like an automated interactive audio tour of your city. If you're in a major city and you have an iPhone and you want to try my app early, Warts and all, help us test, help us find bugs. Email me at localmaxradio at gmail.com. And you know what? I might be able to get you on the list to try out Foursquare's latest app. Um, so that would, be, uh, that would be awesome. It would help me out, and it would help you see what we're working on. All right. On that note, let's introduce today's guest to talk about experimental design. He is an assistant professor of mathematics at Queens College, City University of New York, whose published research spans from machine learning, statistical methods, to crowdsourcing and biomedical. Adam Kapelner, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Honor and privilege. So uh, how long have you been? You've been on my uh, guest lists of guests that I want for, I think, almost two years. I think that's the longest, uh, that's quite longest going. That's not embarrassing. It's, it's good. It's, uh, well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, hey, we eventually got to it. So, uh, so that's good. Um, you've uh, published in many fields. You're a professor of statistics. You run a, a data science undergraduate program. What got you so interested in this topic of uh, statistical inference? Um, so I really got interested in this by doing uh, experiments in Mechanical Turk. So Mechanical Turk, Amazon Mechanical Turk, is a, like a global outsourcing site where people do little jobs on it. And uh, me and a buddy, we decided to test uh, meaningfulness in work. So if, if work is more meaningful, will people work longer, will they work harder, will they work more accurately? And we ran this huge experiment with about 2,500 people. And 2,500 people, it may sound like small for like, you know, four square database standards, but for a social science experiment, that's like a tremendous N, and where N is sample size. And so by running these, uh, by running experiments such as this, I got interested in like all the things that make experiments tick, like how do you randomize properly? Um, how do you measure effects? So that would be like power. Can you detect effects? Yeah. So wait, what, what was, can you give me a little insight on what the particular experiment you were running there was? Yeah, so what we actually did is we gave um, images of cancer cells. I had uh, microscopic images, and in one group we said, hey, just mark all the blobs. So just mark the blobs. And the other group we said, oh, you're going to be, uh, we, we need your help 
to cure uh, breast cancer, uh, we would really appreciate if you would, would mark these cells, these cell nuclei for us. So did, did the people who were using Mechanical Turk, did they know anything about uh, cancer research? Like, what were they supposed to be marking? Like, Oh, in, in the zero context group, they were supposed to be marking digital, digital images. They had no context of what they were doing. And in the meaningful group, we had them mark, we told them it was for breast cancer research and they're helping scientists find a cure. I forget the exact, you know, verbiage we used. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So what were you trying to figure out there? We were trying to see if if giving uh, meaningfulness cues um, had them marked more accurately. So we were able to measure exactly where they clicked. You know, you know, so you or, you yeah. knew did, did you know like where the um wh- like which marks were correct? Yeah. So we we had like, like distance squared metrics because they had, we they said we got to mark the exact center for this for this work to be useful for scientists. Okay. So this was so it's interesting. This was more social science than biological science. You weren't tr- you weren't trying to figure out how to detect cancer. You were trying to figure out. What... Yeah, that was all a ploy. <laughs> but they they didn't know it and. Um, yeah, we got some really, really good data, but by and I've and I've since done other MTurk experiments. Now I'm actually involved with uh, one now trying to test gender bias for uh, publishing. Like if you have a book uh, with a certain cover and you switch between a male and a female author, you could randomize and see, hey, do, do people really want to spend more money on an adventure book written by a male versus a female? Stuff like that. Yeah, so uh, all of this stuff, uh, you know, gets you thinking into experimental design, and I definitely want to talk about that later on in the program. Let's um, let's back up a little bit uh, and sure. just talk about statistics in general. So I'm going to quote from the notes that you gave me about statistics and about whether we have any guarantees in it. So uh, first of all, what is? Let's define a term. Let's let's define confidence region and what does that actually mean? And you mentioned. You mentioned the idea of many universes in 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 the notes, which really intrigued me. So tell me a little about that. Yeah, let me let me back up a little bit. Um, so in experiments, we're trying to estimate things and, and do what's called inference. And you have to sort of, in order to do an experiment right and to understand how experiments work, you have to backtrack all the way to very fundamental ideas such as probability and randomness. And how we view randomness is we... We have these things called random variable models. So, like, I'll give you a typical random variable model, and hopefully by building okay. this up. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, imagine, like, a dice roll. So just a fair dice. It's got six sides. There's numbers one, two, three, four, five, six. Each, in a fair die, each uh, side appears with probability one-sixth. And maybe we'll talk about what probability really means later. Yeah, But let's just, will. like, not, just, just like, let's, let's just use a naive, let's yes. just use a naive, you know, conception of what probability is. It's what we're all doing anyway. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, so imagine you, you roll the die many times um, and you, uh, well, f- first of all, we know the average roll because if one appears with probability one six and two appears with probability one six, et cetera, then the average roll will be 3.5. Yes. If you average everything together. And that, that's also a very interesting um, thing with probability or expectation is that no uh, no role, no single role will be 3.5. Or as I've heard it stated by someone, the average person has one testicle or something like that. So <laughs> That's a scary thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the expectation is not actually in the support of the random variable. Yeah. So the support here would be 1, 3, 5, 6. So that would be uh, like a basic class in probability. But statistics is actually very related 
but um, it's completely different in its outlook. So you, we know if, if you have the die and you know that it's fair, that the expectation is 3.5. Yeah. But now if you, if you flip the, the whole thing on its head conceptually and you just look at a sample of ones and twos and threes and whatever comes out of this die, and imagine you don't know it's from a die, and now you're put, you're, you're put to task to say, what is the average? That's inference. Right. So you don't know what is going on in this problem. Right. Essentially. You, 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 you don't know. Uh, and that's pretty much all of life. Like when you run experiments at Foursquare, you don't know how good an ad is. You don't right. know if when you run a clinical trial, you don't know how good the drug is. Um, maybe if you were the master of the universe and, and saw you know all the particles and all the atoms and molecules, which is what Laplace was talking about and his, uh, how, how he viewed probability, then you would know exactly, but we yeah. don't have such omniscience. And if you had that omniscience, you might even know what the die is going to roll on in any given time anyway. So yeah. you, wouldn't, you might not even need probability. If you knew the flick of your uh, thumb that flicked the, flick, flicked the die, the air pressure, and the hardness of the table, it would be like, okay, that's a three. Yeah. Before you even did. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, okay. So let's back out to um, confidence region. Yeah. So... Uh, so now imagine you just have these numbers in front of you. You've got a 1, you've got a 4, you've got a 6. Maybe you have n of them, or I don't know, n is 20. You've, you've, you've rolled it 20 times. You have a, you have a bunch of what, what we call data, yeah. which is uh, realizations from this random process. And you're put to task to guess the average, the true average. So maybe a naive thing to do is just take the, the sample average, just add up all the numbers, divide by 20. Sure. That would actually be a very smart idea because x bar is – Probably the best estimator you can get for the expectation. That's and you need like you know lots of math to prove that. But the the naive thing you learn in high school actually winds up being like the best possible thing you can do. So the thing is that x bar is not going to be exactly three point five. It may be four point two two, right? For whatever reason, or it may be you know three point one one. And that's the idea of multiple universes because in multiple universes of twenty dice rolls, you're going to see a whole bunch of different things. You get you're actually going to see six to twenty different things. And we live yeah. in just one of those universes. So, okay. So, you, yeah, so you got one. So what's the, what is the implication of that then in terms of the confidence region? So in every universe, you're going to get a different confidence region. Or, or am I thinking about it in the point opposite? estimate. Yeah. Am I, thinking of, am I thinking of this in a um, – am I thinking of this in, a, in the opposite way? Right. Each universe produces different dice rolls. And each dice, each set of dice rolls, do you come up with the confidence region from the dice rolls rather yes. than just adding them together? So each each time you're getting a different confidence region, which is weird because you think confidence region is my confidence of the answer, but really it's from the data, um, it's from the data itself, which, you know, I, I get, no, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> there's actually three main goals of inference. The first, which we spoke about, is like, just get a point estimate. Be like, hey, give me your best guess. The second right. is like, give me a region of possible guesses yeah. that makes sense with some amount of, quote, confidence. And in order to talk about that, we have to talk about frequentism versus Bayesianism. And I don't uh, – we could go big, there if we want. topic I, on I the think, show. I, I think you, you've got Bayesianism covered uh, yeah. from a lot of your previous ep- uh, episodes. So I do, I'm, I do. I'm not going to go there. But um, if you want what's called a, a confidence set or a confidence region, and Bayesian would be a credible region, it's just like – an interval of possible values for your expectation. Right. And, and that's going to change based on whatever universe you're in. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so you also mentioned the idea of 
consistent estimates. And so I, I want to know exactly what you mean by consistent estimates. Um, yeah, wh wh what is that? Yeah, so it gets back to the idea that one point estimate is, again, one realization from one possible universe. And if you were able to roll, die, roll the dice infinite amount of times and, and keep computing that point estimate as like sort of the sequence, yeah. then that point estimate will converge towards what you care about, which is the 3.5. Gotcha. But in any finite sample, which is everything we do in the finite world, yeah. Every experiment we run has a fine. Last time n was infinity is in a storybook, which is our textbook. Right. I've never had infinite. You've data. never had infinite data. No one will ever get infinite data. So like consistency and these like large sample properties are kind of like one way that we hoodwink the world into believing what we do as statisticians. Because hmm. at the end of the day, you just have this point estimate. It's random, and it could be four point two two, and that's the best guess you've got. So which is a scary thought. Yeah. But it is what it is. So how do we live with that? How do we know anything? We just do right <laughs> no uh, yeah th the thing is we just we've all agreed to live like this um and because we have to because the world itself is fundamentally random and we're going to get wrong estimates some of the time we're going to we're going to find the wrong effect some of the time we're going to be we're going to be wrong some of the time so we all just live like that yeah so um, this is another theme on the show that I that I didn't say beforehand, but just just came to mind that there's certain times when it's helpful to think probabilistically, and then there's certain times to say, "No, I'm going to believe that this is the true answer and move on." Um, how, do you ever think about that? Like, how do you um, how do you decide which to do? Um, well, in cases where there's low noise and lots of data, then um, the confidence that's going to be pretty darn small. So you could kind of be assured, like, "Yeah, that's kind of what it is," but that's not the usual case in social science, not the usual case in medical science, and that's why I've gotten really interested in uh, designing experiments so you, you get smaller confidence sets and you could find effects with higher probabilities. That's, the, that's what you're after. Like You're after an accurate estimate, and, and then you also want to have a high probability of finding that your drug is good or your ad is good or whatever it is that you're doing. Right, right. Um, and, of course, it all depends on, like, what decision that you ultimately have to make from that. Right, and there's um, asymmetric costs. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's um, the next step past what, <laughs> what, what we do as statisticians. Right. Well, I mean, I was thinking the, the, the dice could be an interesting example if, say, uh, say there was a seventh side that comes up very, very infrequently, but it's, like, a huge number. It's, like, a million. And so... Um, you know, how, oh, yeah, your, your X bar will be terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, you, you can set up toy problems like that, uh, but also there are, there are certainly real-world problems like that as yeah, well. Yeah, so the, this is why Bayesianism is actually if, – if you, if, you, if you think that it's there, like that should be in your prior, hmm. where in a, in a frequentist outlook where you have to be completely objective and only make a decision on the data in front of you, you can get quite hosed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So – when you leave here, uh, and I don't know if this is going to be today, but I think this is going to be for Monday, I am going to be recording a solo show where I attempt to define probability. I don't know what I'm going to say yet. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be <laughs> definitively answer it once and for all, but I know uh, it'll actually go out before this interview. So I'm not going to ask you uh, what I should say because this is kind of a self-imposed homework assignment for me, but what are some pitfalls maybe I should avoid? What are some things that people think probability is that it, it is not? Um, so I actually 
teach this somewhat in depth for uh, uh, when I do my beginning probability course. And I actually have the students read the first chapter of uh, Donald Gilley's book on philosophy of probability. Hmm. I, so I, I will link to that in, in show notes, but I, I've not heard of that, so I, maybe I should read it. Yeah, so let's go back to – well, first of all, we, you could ask the question, um, is probability, does it really exist? So, you, again, you, we'll go back to flipping you – know, sorry, rolling the die. Um, so there's a philosopher, a physicist, a mathematician, and a philosopher named Laplace in the early 1800s, and he basically said there uh, – if there was a demon that knew everything, Laplace's demon, an omniscient force, I guess it was some sort of conception of God in his mind, that knew everything about the universe, there would be no probability whatsoever. It would be completely deterministic. Right. And the only reason we have one-sixth of one, one-sixth two, et cetera, is because we just don't know anything. We're like, we're totally ignorant of how, of, of what's going on in the world. But if we did know stuff, then it would, then it would be... Um, it would be deterministic. So you'd have to know everything. Right. So that's, that's the first question. Like, is probability real? Laplace says no. Once we got to quantum, then people said, okay, maybe it is, is real. But then it's like, well, that's only on a really small scale. So big things probably are still fake, as in there, there is no probability. It's deterministic if you knew everything. So that's an ongoing debate. Then the question is, okay, let's say probability is real, regardless of, sorry, let, let, let's say we are ignorant and, and the world appears random. How do you define the darn thing? So one definition is like, oh, just roll the die many, many, many times and say, okay, let's say you roll it, you know, 600 billion times and 100 billion were one and 100 billion were two. So it's like, okay, the probability of one is one six. The probability of two is one six, et cetera. Right? Right. That, that's one way of defining it. But then that sort of breaks down in the, in the following uh, in the following way. Like, let's say you want to say the probability a certain candidate will win president next year. Right. It's like, well, you can't actually have all these universes and see, you know, how many times Sanders won, how many times Trump won, et cetera. Right, right, right. You, you, you have this subjective feeling. So probability, um, if you do want to put sort of a measure between zero and one on a certain candidate, you can't use this definition. It gets you into a big hole. So, right, here's my argument for why I kind of lean towards the subjective one. People believe that their dice roll, their die roll, is going to be from – you know, in equal parts, one through six. But who's actually run that experiment? I mean, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe we've, you know, run the, the die experiment in like high school or middle school in some class project. But I know I haven't, you know, actually run an experiment. And w with whatever die I'm using, I don't run the experiment to make sure it's fair on that die. So, I mean, <laughs> we just believe others or we just you know, think about the physics of the die and we say, okay. Yeah, I think Laplace would say there, like, well, let's see exactly what's inside the die. There's equal weight in, on each side. Well, not exactly because, like, the, little, the six is probably a little bit more yeah. indentation. So maybe the six will come up a little bit more, a little less. But, like, give or take, it'll be a six. So he'd say just calculate everything out, and that would be um, – you could do that and not actually run the experiment. And that was actually Karl Popper's definition of probability, which is called the propensity theory. Okay. Is that deep inside the coin, the coin is like there's some sort of ethereal uh, hardwiring that makes it go one, one-sixth of the time, two, one-sixth of the time, et cetera. That's called the propensity yeah. theory. Oh, in the, in the, in the die. Yeah. In the, in some the, sort of function yeah. of the die itself is making it do these random things. It's built in. Of course, again, that breaks down when you say um, who's going to be the president next year. Uh, right. Yeah, who's going to win the election this year. Right, and we have to make decisions based off of those types of things, particularly, I mean, maybe not president, but like in your day-to-day -day life, it's like, uh, do, do I, th I don't know, if I want to go out tonight, do I think the store is going to be open or something like that, you know, um, that's, um, 
I mean, that's one off, especially when you don't check the website. Or even <laughs> when you do check the website, sometimes Foursquare, sometimes Foursquare data and even Google Maps data it's is wrong. just wrong. It's yeah. wrong. The guys it's wanted wrong. to go home early. That yeah, exactly. For reason. <laughs> okay. So um, where – so, okay, so what – what definitions do you think like of probability kind of work for your class? What are the, what are the students sort of, what what do you think makes more sense to the students when they start um, the, learning? The easiest thing to teach is the uh, long run um, theory of uh, um, the long run theory of probability, the long run definition. You just do the event a bajillion times, and then the limit it converges to what the probability is. Right. And of course, there is no limit because there is no infinity. But like, it makes the most sense. It's like, because you can imagine doing the experiment of flipping the coin or rolling the die, you know, a bajillion times. And actually, there was one guy in jail who did it like some ridiculous amount of times, <laughs> flipping a coin and got it right. to be pretty near one half. This is like a thought experiment. It was uh, real to him, Captain Occupied. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, experimental design. Yeah. Um, so... You, let's let's define some terms. Um, so, first of all, what's the what is the goal of experimental design? Let's start there. Uh, the goal of so let's say okay. Well, experimental design. The goal of experiments is to probably um, estimate some causal parameter, which is y- you want to sort of see how the world works at a fundamental causal level. Right. So, cause is sometimes well oftentimes a lot harder to determine than and define as well and define (laughs) than than correlation i mean that's that was the big problem that we were solving at foursquare is the ad causing people to go to your store or were they going to go anyway um and so what is the you know what is the What's the general approach there for experiments to be able to say no this is this is actually a is actually the cause of b right so i mean Let's back up a little bit and just look at uh, what's called observational data, where you, where you haven't actually run an experiment and how much trouble this can get you into. So, like, imagine I'm giving a test in class and a whole bunch of students hand the test in before, you know, let's say the test is 90 minutes and they come at 70 minutes and 75 minutes, hand the test in. And then another group of students wait the whole 90 minutes then hand it in. So if you look at, I mean, historically, the students who handed in earlier um, – have on average higher scores, right? Than, okay. I mean, there's some students that give up, but like on average, like these are students, and, and it's it's obvious why this is. I mean, these students studied and know the material, and like, okay, I just I got I got a hundred. I did the best I could do. I'm gonna just hand in the exam. So now you could say, okay, if the if the average of the group of students who handed the exam in before the 90 minutes is higher than the average of the group that handed it on time, then you may want to say, okay, handing an exam earlier um, is a, is causative. The act of handing some, handing the exam in earlier is causing their grade to go up. And that's completely absurd. Right. Right? But that makes sense to us, uh, whereas right. in some, sometimes... It doesn't. Yeah, sometimes. And this is, this is the whole correlation doesn't imply causation thing. Right. And sometimes it's a mixture of both. Like, how about people who go to the gym versus people who don't go to the gym? So yeah. people who go to the gym uh, look better in, in some sense. We'd have to define, like, how to measure yeah. look better. Like, you know, that's a whole other project. Well, maybe there's, right? maybe there's, like, health uh, or maybe, hey, maybe I went to the gym and I started losing weight at the same time, you know? Yeah. So, like, we know that going to the gym is causal of something. But on the other hand, who goes to the gym? People who, like, probably already diet. People probably maybe already take, like, I don't know, 
vitamin D, people who already are living this healthy lifestyle. So like, so we probably there's a portion of whatever estimate you're measuring that's just correlational, right? It's just due to like the idea that the people who go to the gym are different than the people who don't go to the gym. Right. And some of it is causal, meaning like going to the gym actually makes you lose weight. I mean, I know everything in between. That's yeah, the problem. A, a lot of the example, and you know, these are examples that are given in like the canonical example is like smoking causing cancer, uh, where it was hard to kind of, you can't really ethically do an experiment there, so it's sort of hard to narrow. It was it was hard to prove that for many years. The amazing thing about that is actually the. People think experiments have been going on for like, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Oh, it's such an old idea. But actually it was started in the 1920s by a guy named Fisher, um, Sir, Sir Ronald A. Fisher. And he lived until I think the mid-60s. And he actually, ironically, remarkably, came out on the side of defending the cigarette companies, the tobacco industry, saying it's correlation and not causation. And his argument was, he'd probably throw it away today, but there's some gene inside of you that both produces lung cancer somehow and both produces the the um, predilection to smoke so if that's true then it's like oh sorry you're you know you're you both smoke and get lung cancer but it had nothing to do with the actual smoking it just had to do with this like lurking variable behind the scenes this confounder so and it was um yeah that's really interesting. it's pretty interesting <laughs> right i mean the founder of experiments actually defended the yeah yeah, and so so um, yeah, and about nineteen twenties, you say, is that nineteen twenties is when he was uh, beginning to um, do randomized experiments, actually sort of flip coins or randomize where the treatment or manipulation went, and that was on a farm north of London, and he was testing fertilizer. So randomization comes from looking at cow poop. Hmm. Another little interesting historical tidbit. That is very interesting. It's really cool. Okay. So uh, what is, what's selection bias? So selection bias is like, again, um, the, let's say you're going back to the test example. So the selection bias in, in, in the group of students who hand in the exam earlier, the, um, the, the selection into that group is students who, have, who are smart and worked hard. And because there's this large selection bias effect, it's going to mask, and it's not only mask, but actually flip the direction of the actual causal effect. And you know the causal effect has to be, if you have less time, come on, your score is going to go down. So it's actually flipping, yeah. it, it's, it's masking it so much that it's flipped, the sign of it is flipped. Yeah, so I'm, that's... And you don't know what it is a priori, that's the problem. Right, and that's the problem with observational data. Yes. And a lot of the data that we have is not experimental data, it's, it's observational data. And so I feel like, tell me if this is, if this is right, like... Um, well, it's certainly right in the ad space, but I feel like the the controlled experiment is kind of a high cost but high reward way of drawing inferences. Yeah. Right. It's it's the highest cost. Most things in life we can't do a randomized experiment. You on. can't tell people smoke from birth and not smoke from birth. Oh, they just smoke no, or no. not smoke. Yeah, yeah. And but mo any anything we believe in in the day to day life. We're not running ex randomized experiments, but Correct. when you want to um, solve the big questions and there is enough um, you know, resources available to run the experiment, and the, the, it's, you can experiment on it. Like you said in the smoking example, you can't experiment on it, and there are probably lots of examples of things where you know, it's just not possible to run a controlled experiment. Either maybe we could do it in the future, but, but just not now. Um, but when you can, you can get that 
answer. Gold standard. And that's when, yeah. Yeah, so just to backtrack a little bit to observational studies before we get to like the, the uh, what I want, my, the topic of my research, which is randomized experiments, is there, there are ways to get causal estimates from observational data. Um, it's, it could, like, there's uh, people who, whose expertise is in, in that uh, you could match. There's, there's all sorts of things you could do. It's not my area of expertise, right. um, but it's so, really, really cool stuff. And there are ways to do it, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's more flimsy than, um, let's say, running the actual randomized experiment. That's the gold standard. Sure. Uh, can you think of an, an experiment maybe you've been involved in or, or maybe not where it sort of um, uh, overturns the results of uh, an observational studies? There's definitely cool examples of that where, they, where um, they've had you know, epidemiological studies where they just look at a whole bunch of people, and then when they were actually ran the RCT, the randomized controlled trial, then they found no effect. And so mm. people were taking this drug or doing this treatment, and it actually wound up like didn't passing. It didn't pass the smell test afterwards. Uh, and it happens a lot in medicine. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure everyone has a story of things that uh, they thought would solve their problem, their sure. medical problem, and then just didn't work. Yeah, uh, part of the problem in medicine is that they're making a lot of decisions based on observational data without um, an, an RCT that's properly powered. What do you think? I mean, I don't know if you're going to want to answer this question, but you, you, we think about like you know, hundreds of years ago or even less when they just had these crazy medical theories like, you know, we're going to drain someone's blood to make them better. The um, yeah, yeah. Like, how did those beliefs like how did those beliefs endure for so many years? And how many of them have we actually gotten rid of? Have we like gotten rid of? all of them, or there's still probably beliefs out there in the medical community and others that are just, you know, that are just lingering on, that are just, just not witchcraft. true. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's a very interesting question to ask. Yeah. Um, the, the whole, so, I mean, randomized experiments got, got underway in the 1920s. And with all things, once a good idea comes out, it takes a while to sort of catch fire. So it actually, the idea of running experiments in medicine actually only caught fire in the 60s. That's the whole evidence-based medicine thing. So we've only been doing experiments on a large scale in medicine, I believe, since the 60s. Wow. And that's like our parents' lifetime, right? Yeah. I mean, like it's, yeah. it's incredible to think about that, but it is what it is. What do you think, and again, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, but I, you know, what do you think about choosing which experiment to do? Do you, do you ever think about that? Because sometimes, you know, if you're... Um, so you're a scientist or you're a medical researcher, and you think, okay, there are lots of experiments we have to do here. Is there, is there any – I know, like, as an engineer, it's often a, a problem. One of the biggest problems that we face is what are we going to build today? We can build anything, but if we, don't, if we choose the wrong things to build, then we'll waste a lot of time. In fact, a lot of time is wasted as it is. So it's just if you can pick better what you're going to work on, then, um, then you're, you're more productive overall. And so is there, like, a, are there any – Markers that you found of useful versus not useful experiments. Well, I mean, asking an academic is probably. <laughs> well, I, I mean, just want your yeah, perspective. Yeah, so 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 we have the luxury, and I'm very lucky to be a professor and again have an academic job of investigating what we find interesting, which may not have um, a payoff. So, like when you run an experiment, you want a payoff, right? When a drug company runs an experiment, they want a payoff. They want to be able to sell that drug afterwards. Yeah, but even if it's something you find interesting, like I, I feel like, so a lot of experiments might be something where 
you know, you're, you're working towards an ultimate goal, and sometimes maybe some experiments don't pan out the way that um, uh, you think. Like, have you ever had an experiment where, I'm sure you have experiments where, like, man, this data just didn't, didn't conclusively tell us one way or the other? Yeah, so you always wonder whether your negative result is a true negative result or you just were underpowered. So I'll give the example of, of the, um, the experiment we just ran in, in a, like a sociological experiment. So we found that for a, thril- a thriller book, uh, you would probably conjecture that people would s- state that they would pay more for a male author versus a female author. We found no difference. We did the same thing for an erotica book, <laughs> kind of salaciously, and we, you would probably think that like, if you're reading erotica, like you want it written by a by a woman and not a man, we found no such effect either. So even when they knew the gender of the authors. Oh yeah, and we had about two thousand people in that study. So we found no such stated preference. Of course, stated preference is a whole other methodological can of worms that we have to deal with. But they stated that they would not pay more or less for um, for those books depending on the gender. So we're following that study up now with with more genres. Um, yeah. So you always wonder. You always wonder. Okay, so, um, and I don't know how recent this is, but you talk a lot about the randomization of experimental design yeah. and the importance of that. So maybe you just tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's, what, what uh, that means. that's the topic that I, I, I think putatively got me here, or ostensibly got me here. Um, it's the subject that I've been thinking about since these large MTurk uh, experiments, which we talked about you know, at the beginning of the podcast. So... How do you, if you're randomizing the experiment, and again, you randomize to make sure there's no selection bias, so you want to put an equal, like in the test example, like you want to put an equal number of smart or not so smart students in the, in the hand and test early uh, group as the hand and test on time group. And so there'd be no selection bias because all these things would wash out in the limit. So the question is, um, <laughs> what, what is that limit and do they wash out? And the answer is, no, they don't wash out, and there are uh, randomized experiments solve a lot of problems. They don't solve um, the this issue of in any experiment there will, there will be bias. So let me let me give an example. Yeah. So let's say you have a hundred subjects in some experiment. You're you're looking at I don't know a, a blood pressure medication. So you take uh, these hundred people in the group, and you flip coins. Um, and say, hey, you, your pill, your placebo, your placebo, pill, sugar pill, 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 sugar pill. So how do you do that exactly? And is, is there ways to actually randomize that would give you a tighter result, a, a, uh, an estimate with lower error, a higher probability of finding your effect? So again, smaller confidence region, which means lower error in, 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 in measuring what the effect of the drug is, and a higher probability of actually saying, hey, this drug works. Right, and so, so so you're randomizing who gets the placebo, um, and but who gets the pill? But you're worried about the group of people who are actually in the, the the group as a whole. Yeah, well, the group as a whole, you're you're never going to oh, so that's that's the whole idea of generalization, and, and can you actually take the result of your experiment and like say, oh, you did it in New York, so like, will this this pill also work in Norway? And that's a whole other can of worms, but let, yeah. one can of worms at a time. Okay. So, here, here's the deal. So let's say um, maybe you want just 50 pills and 50 placebos. If you just flip coins, you could get 62 pills and 38 placebos. Right. So the first restriction you do beyond complete randomization, which is just flipping coins, is just say, let's get the groups equal. And most people say that that's, that's complete randomization. 
um, even though it's a tiny, tiny restriction. Okay, so that's the first thing people do without even thinking about it. But that right. you can see that that's different. Right, but you, so you can randomize that. I'm, th I'm imagining like I have a deck of 100 cards where like, you know, uh, half of them are one color and half of them are another color. And you and shuffle, I just shuffle, I shuffle, 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 them out. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, the, uh, that's the 100 choose 50 possible randomization. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's get to the, the meat and potatoes here as, as to why um, randomization. Uh, so my first question is, is that good or is, that, is it better just to flip the coin and oh, see where? Yeah, there's very little downside to actually doing 50-50. Okay. Very little downside. So that's actually a smart thing to do. So now let's, let's, get, to, let's get to trouble in paradise here. So again, we talked about selection bias, and selection bias was because there were more smart students who worked hard in the early hand-in test group yeah. versus the other. But so now let's go back to the clinical trial. So let's say I have 50 pills and 50 placebos, and all the 50 pills were men, and all the 50 placebos were women. Like that could happen, right? Could. And then so now you have this really you're in this really sticky situation at the end of the study, which is well. I have an effect, but is it due to the fact that it's all men versus women? And did that just happen randomly? Just happen randomly. And is that is that common? Like it seems like that would be very unlikely. That would be very unlikely. But you know, sixty-five men and thirty—you know, sorry, let's say uh, thirty men and twenty women versus twenty men and thirty women. Oh yeah, that's likely. Yeah, sure. Right. So that would happen all the time, and especially with these small studies, if you only have a hundred people, or you that know. could induce bias. We don't call it selection bias. That would induce randomization bias, or whatever you want to call it. The idea that you're imbalanced among the treatment group, treatment group and the control group, the pill and placebo group. So let's say you happen to be balanced there, but the whole pill group is older on average than the placebo group, which is younger. So you're misbalanced on that. Yeah. So let's say you're balanced on gender, but you're misbalanced on age. Right. You're in the same situation. Yeah. We could just keep going here. We could say you're, you're imbalanced on hair color. You're, you're imbalanced on... Uh, height. You're imbalanced on uh, blood pressure from the get-go. Right. You could be imbalanced on all sorts of stuff. And in fact, once you get to about 10 characteristics of the people, of the people in the groups, you will be severely misbalanced, meaning if you run like a t-test and say, is this different? You will be severely imbalanced with very, very high probability. Right. So, so you're and, and at least imbalanced. one of the, you could just keep thinking of groups you and eventually... You thinking of characteristics and eventually yeah. you will be severely misbalanced, which will induce a bias if that characteristic matters to what you're measuring. Okay, so... So that's a problem. Yeah, so... That's a big problem. And they knew this. So Fisher knew it and Student, the guy who invented the T-test, they both knew it in the 1920s and 30s. So already from, from the time of the inception of randomized experiments, they said, hey, listen, like, this could happen and it's bad. It's going to spell disaster. So let's go in there and manipulate and restrict our randomization. We'll still randomize... But we'll only we'll only we'll do a, a more restricted randomization. Not not allow every randomization, every partition to get through. So what 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 uh, what Fisher said is we're going to do this thing called blocking. So we're gonna, we're going to look at you know gender and we're going to make sure there's 25 men and 25 women in each group. And for age, we're going to make sure you know there's this many you know old people, this many middle aged people, this many young people. And we're going to make sure that the groups are homogeneous on these things due to this blocking. And students' response was, oh, how about this? Like, if I, let, let's randomize and see what the deal is and check the balance between the two groups on, on, the, on these characteristics that we could measure. And if it's a crappy randomization, we'll just, like, throw that out and just randomize again. And we'll keep randomizing until we get to the point where, like, oh, it's, it's decent enough to, like, actually run the experiment. 
Okay. That was 1920s and 30s. So that sounds, I mean, does it work? That almost sounds like cheating. <laughs> I can't, I'm trying to. Yeah. So, so, so now let's fast forward to um, uh, present times. And you can imagine um, pathologically going all the way. So let's imagine you could check over all 100 choose 50, which is impossible. But imagine you could and pick the best possible partition, like the partition that would be gender is exactly balanced, age is exactly balanced, beginning blood pressure is exactly balanced. And as we search through the, what is it, 10th to the 50th? I, I have to check that. It's, it's an enormous yeah. amount of possible, uh, possible partitions. You could use a giant computer and use heuristics. It's an NP-complete problem, which means it won't run in polynomial time. But you could use a giant computer and get pretty darn close. Yeah, and I, you could probably get a good... A good estimate. A very good yeah. partition. Yeah. That's like the epitome of cheating, according to your you, – you said it was cheating before. Well, it sounds That's like That's super cheating, super-duper cheating. So there's got to be a price you pay, right? So randomization was a good thing, and it allowed us to um, find – it's the gold standard for causal estimates. But now we're really cheating. We're restricting our randomization all the way down. There are people who are proposing such designs, so what is the right amount of randomization? If you could like define amount of randomization with like using one partition that's optimal all the way on the left versus just flipping coins all the way on the right and everything in between. Right. That's like a spectrum of randomness in your randomized experiment. Which level or uh, w how much randomness should you have? So that's where we began a year ago investigating this and remarkably... I don't think anyone answered this question before. Um, so it seems like a it's a somewhat like a basic. fundamental. It yeah. seems like a very basic question, right? But it took us a very long time to figure out what to do and how to formulate it. But we got very interesting results, and our results, real quick, are if you assume okay, so you measure certain characteristics of your 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 of your subjects in your uh, in your experiment. If you know for sure that those characteristics, the only thing that matter, um, and, and of course your, your treatment manipulation for what you're measuring, then you optimize all the way and you balance like, like heck. You use the giant computer and you don't care about how much randomness there. Right. And if you know that there's other things inside these subjects that matter that you haven't measured, right. then so you there, want to randomize more because you want those to be balanced. In the, ah, so there, there yeah. could be other features that you don't know about. There most and certainly so, are. Yeah. There most certainly are. In every experiment, um, every subject's uh, measurement, every subject's response is measured with noise, just like in the die roll, right? So you do roll a die, it should be 3.5 plus or minus noise. Yeah. If you think of it that way, there's just going to be noise there. So everyone has realized with noise, and that's why fundamentally, you know, we make mistakes when we when we uh, when we analyze when we make decisions based on random data. We make we will make mistakes sometimes because everything is realized with noise. That noise, according to Laplace, comes from the fact that there's things that you haven't measured that's producing all sorts of disturbances, random disturbances in what's measured. Hmm. So if that's a big chunk of um, what you're measuring, if that explains a lot of the variance in what you're measuring, then you want the randomness because the randomness will be safe. So in everything in between. So you have to, first of all, know how the things that you, what we found is you have to know how the characteristics about the subjects affect the response, know what percentage of the variance in the response, and then you can go about picking the right amount of randomness. And we proved that the right amount of randomness 
is going to be somewhere in the middle, the middle path. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's really interesting. I think you know my audience is really interested in how you know how how we accumulate knowledge in the world, and that sort of is a is a really interesting tidbit. It's amazing how many statistics and studies are just pounded into us every day from the TV and online, and uh, <laughs> we seem to think that it says something, and um, <laughs> how many different aspects of it there are to consider. Uh, so yeah, thanks for sharing that. Uh, today. Um, uh, do you have any last thoughts on this? And also, like, I will post everything that you send me on the show notes page, but uh, is there anything that people should check out to learn more about all this stuff? Um, yeah, we have, like, a, a really cool uh, paper that we wrote. It's it's really actually readable by uh, somewhat the very uh, elementary background. And, and, oh, that's cool. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, it's great talking about these results because it sort of vindicates what everyone's doing already. Like when you run your experiments, you're probably blocking or doing something like this. And we actually prove that, like, that's the best thing to do. That's the smartest thing to do. The naive thing that, you know, student Fisher came up with 100 years ago was the right thing to do, which is, which is an amazing thing. They had the right intuition because they were just geniuses and giants. Interesting. All right. Adam Kapellner, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. We keep on learning. So much here on The Local Maximum. Can't you just feel it? Can't you just feel your brain getting stronger every time you listen to an episode of The Local Maximum? That should counteract, you know, 99% of the stuff that you read on the internet. Um, I'm going to try to get Aaron on this week. We're going to do, we're kind of due for a Bayesian analysis of the news, uh, which we, we used to do. And oof. The start of 2020, <laughs> I've got to tell you, yes, it's come to this. Uh, Bayesian analysis of the news is uh, is definitely in the cards. Um, I also wanted to do an episode about how an individual should approach risk and think about risk, which is sort of on the other side of the equation once you come up with the probabilities. Um, so I think I, there's a lot we could talk about, financial risk, health risk, life risk, in general. I, I, don't, I think I want to approach it Maybe we could find some things from a theoretical angle and from a practical angle and see where we get there. Um, also, the political season is heating up. I don't know if you guys, all you politics junkies out there, I you know was watching Super Tuesday, watching all the Democrats fold and support Biden. Very interesting development. Um, and now you know we have a, a few more states tomorrow coming in, and we'll see if the if the primary. Uh, of the Democratic primary is is uh, is closing up, um, and so we're we're sort of going to talk about what happened uh, from a from a prediction perspective, from a statistical perspective, just a societal perspective. What is going on? So stay tuned to the local maximum. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power.